thank you again, worship team and choir and orchestra, for your ministry among us. Good morning, everyone, uh, including all of those of you who are tuning in from our venues here at Central Campus and also those of you at, uh, tuning in from various regionals uh, in our city and in our province. When Karl Barth, uh, the famous German theologian, uh, gave a series of lectures in the United States, a seminary student asked him this question, Dr. Barth, what is the single most important truth that you have learned as a theologian? Dr. Barth contemplated on that question for a moment and then responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The very nature of our God is love. He is the source of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. If you were to remove God's love from the scriptures, if you were to remove it from the Christian faith, you would have just another cold, bland, lifeless religion consisting of rules and rituals, legalism, and endless expectations, and a whole bunch of people who are miserable and mean. What makes the Christian faith unique and warm and attractive and appealing is that our God is a personal God who can be known. He is a loving and a gracious God, a God who cares for us and is for us in every way. That's going to be the focus of our time in the Word today. Would you stand with me as we dedicate this time to Him? Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again that you didn't just create this, uh, this earth and then leave us. Lord, you have been pursuing us from the day that we turned our backs on you. You've been pursuing us. So great is your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to know you and experience you and to experience your love. I want to pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand the nature of your love today and then, Lord, to apply it to our hearts, that this just won't be a, a head thing for us. But, Lord, it truly will be something that changes the way that we live. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Several years ago, I noticed that one of our sons seemed to be somewhat emotionally distant from me, and so I met with him uh, to ask him why. A lot of things were said and discussed, but what it all boiled down to was this. He said, Dad, I know that you love me, and I know that you would die for me, but I don't always feel accepted by you. There are times I feel like I never quite live up to your expectations and that you're disappointed in me. That was somewhat surprising for me to hear. And so I said, son, are you hearing me say to you that you aren't meeting my expectations? And he said, no. Most of the time, it's just a feeling I get after we talk. 
He said, when you give me advice or when you give me suggestions about priorities and things, when you coach me, it's good stuff. I appreciate it. I know that you mean well. But in the end, I feel that unless and until I do what you've suggested, that I'm falling short in your eyes. Now, that conversation was very instructive to me. Here I was showering my son with lots of hugs and verbal assurances of my love for him, but all of those demonstrations of love weren't having much of an effect because he didn't totally believe that I accepted him. And that was creating a barrier between us, a distancing. It's tough wanting to be around someone that you believe you can never please. And it showed me that it is possible to feel love but not accept it. Now while this is true in human relationships, as I pondered this more, it dawned on me that this is also true in our relationship with God. Most Christians believe that God loves them, but few believe that they are actually accepted by God. Most Christians can quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And yet they walk around most every day feeling that God's mad at them, or that God is shunning them, or at least that he's not very happy with them because they're failing to live up to all of the principles and standards that are laid out in the scriptures. Well, if I'm describing you at all, then I believe you're going to be encouraged today as a result of our time together in the Word. James Byron Smith, whom I want to give credit for some of his keen insights on this particular topic, says, one of the reasons we feel like we never measure up to God is because we believe that God only loves us when we're good. We believe that if we're good, then God's happy. If we're not, then God's upset with us. In other words, his love is conditional on our performance. We learn this from the time that we're young. Early in life, we learned that acceptance by others was linked to our behavior. If I ate all of my porridge, then I would hear someone say, good job, son. Way to down that stuff. When we knocked over our brother in order to grab the toy, we're often told, good girls don't do that. As we grow older, we hear coaches tell us, son, no pain, no gain. We hear people that we respect say to us, if you want to get ahead, you have to work hard for it. There is no such thing as a free lunch. And you see, it's on that basis over time, it's only natural for us to begin to conclude that God functions in the same way. If we want God's approval, we need to score an A in religious performance. We need to please God by being good and by doing good. Not that there's anything wrong with being good or with doing good. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 which I quoted earlier, says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. The real indicator that we know God and that the love of God is in us 
is that we have a changed heart. We have changed attitudes in the way we relate to others. We, we, um, have, uh, we, we have this desire inside to live a Christ-like life, uh, to b- live an exemplary, exemplary life, to be generous, to have servant hearts. But we do so not because we think we have to. Because if we think we have to, we're doing it for all the wrong reasons and we don't understand God's love. We're trying to earn His love. We're trying to earn His acceptance. We're trying to earn our salvation. And we can't earn it. We do these things because we already have embraced God's love. We're already his forever child. And we do it out of love for him. In another service, um, a young woman approached me. And um, she said, you know, I really struggle believing what you taught today. And she said, because when I read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, it seems to teach that God gets angry and punishes us when we disobey him. And her observation is right. Because God will discipline us. He will allow hardship to come our way. But what we need to understand is that his underlying motive is always love. You see, a loving parent will not stand back or sit back and allow her child to self-destruct. A loving parent will get upset when a son keeps disobeying her and hurts himself repeatedly. A loving father will discipline his child if he really loves him. And in the same way, even though the people of Israel fail to obey God again and again and again, he never gave up on them. He kept pursuing them. He kept forgiving them. He kept embracing them. The predominant message of the Bible is that God's grace is a gift that is freely offered to us and that his love for us is not diminished by our failures and our sin. Now Jesus had a lot of things to say about the nature of God's love. And in Luke chapter 15, he told a number of parables or stories to help the people of his day and us today to understand the nature of God's love. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. And you see immediately there's a number of parables that he gives. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then he gives the parable of the lost son. And all of those parables are really aimed at communicating essentially the same message about the love of God. We're going to focus on the parable of the lost son. 
And we're not going to read this passage because it's quite lengthy, but I am going to tell you the story. It's a story about a man who had two boys, and somewhere along the way, the younger one wants to experience life in the fast lane. And so he asks his father for his share of the estate. His father is grieved by the request, but he gives him what he asks. And the son gathers up this money and he heads off to another city. And soon he's hanging out with the fast crowd and he's doing some fast living. He has a good time until the money runs out. And then when the money runs out, surprise, surprise, so do his friends. He finds himself all alone and totally broke, and the only way that he can support himself is to help somebody out feeding pigs. Jesus goes on to say that in time, the lost son comes to his senses and decides to go home. He plans to apologize to his father for his rebellion, for his immaturity, his poor judgment, and to offer to become one of his hired hands, since he knows that he has forfeited his right to be regarded as a son. And so he starts off for home. His father, who has been watching for his son's return every day, spots him while he's still a long way from their home. And immediately this hope-filled father runs down the road to embrace his son. And before the son can give his planned apology, his father wraps his arms around him and kisses him and orders that a party be thrown to celebrate his son is alive and that his son has returned home. This son, whom he feared was dead, is now alive. Now I want you to notice verse 1 of chapter 15. It tells us that there were two groups of people who heard Jesus give these parables. The first group were the sinners and those despised tax collectors, and they had little or no understanding of God's love at all. The second group were the religious leaders. These folks had a very distorted understanding of God's love. And so Jesus used this particular parable to teach both of these groups about the love of God. Jesus essentially said to them, and as even as he says it to us today, if you want to know how much your heavenly Father loves you, then place yourself in the sandals of the lost son in this parable. And through this parable, Jesus teaches us four great truths about God's love. The first truth that he teaches through this parable is that God delights in you. In verse 20 it says, While the lost son was still a long way off, his father saw him. That tells me that his father likely spent every spare moment that he had looking longingly down the road with the hope of seeing his son returning. He loved his son. He delighted being with his son. And like any lovesick father, he longed for him to return. If you've, had, if you've ever had a son or a daughter or a sister or brother 
or a very good friend move to another city because of college or because of work, you know the feelings that this father had. You know the pain of separation that you experience and how the only thing that keeps you going is that one day soon, perhaps in three months or six months or a year, you're going to see them again. Well, our Heavenly Father feels that same kind of sense of separation when we ignore him, when we turn our back to him, or when we drift away from him. And yet when you wander off, however bad or however self-centered the reason may be, you need to know that your heavenly Father doesn't dismiss you from his mind. No, he delights in you so much that each and every moment he longs for your return. He misses you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. You matter to him because he made you. It was his love. It was his generous giving spirit that actually led him, caused the Trinity to um, create mankind. Because they wanted to expand the circle and to have a relationship with us, the same kind of relationship they enjoyed with each other. And folks, God doesn't make junk, in case you need to hear that. So if God likes me and I like me, then if you don't like me, well, it's you that's got the problem, right? The point is, if God likes me, who cares what anybody else thinks? If God loves me and delights in me, then I don't have to prove myself to anybody. <clears throat> Furthermore, God's love for you never ends. The father in this parable had good reason to be offended by the actions of his son. He even had good reason to disown his son. Peter Scazzaro points out the son asking for his inheritance while his father was still alive was a huge offense in ancient Mideastern culture, as it would be even today if you think about it. Because in those days, the son was essentially saying, Father, I am eager for you to die. I want to live now as if you were dead. This was not great news for the father to hear. This was insulting. In addition to this, to meet his son's request, the father would have to have had to sell a sizable portion of his land and also of his livestock. For you see, in those days, they didn't have bank accounts, savings accounts, and checkbooks. In those days, most of your wealth was in your land and in your livestock. And so, in order to give the son what he was asking for, the father would have had to sell uh, a significant portion of his estate and the whole community as a result would have gathered like they do today at an auction sale and say, like, why are you doing this? And they would have found out about this father-son's rebellion. And that would have brought even more grief and shame on his father. 
And so many a father in that day would have responded to such a request by disowning him and driving him out of the house. And yet the father's love is so much deeper than his son's rebellion and selfishness. Through this parable, Jesus is saying, God's love never ends. Even when you pull off one of these things. He is the everlasting father. His love is eternal. Oh, make no mistake, God doesn't necessarily step in all the time and prevent us from suffering the consequences of our sinful behavior. This son suffered some huge consequences as a result of his decision. He lost his inheritance. Secondly, he probably lost his health in the process, and he lost the relationship with his father for all the years that he was gone. There's always consequences, and God doesn't always step in. In fact, he grieves over the ungodly decisions we make because he knows that sin has the potential of destroying us and destroying our relationship with God and also our relationship with other people. But he never stops loving us. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Psalm 89.2 says, God's love will last for all time. Or in some translations, your love stands firm forever. Even when we offend him, when we hurt him, when we sin against him, the way the children of Israel did all the way through the Old Testament, he always loves us, he pursues us, he's for us because God's love isn't a human love. You see, human love has a tendency to wear out. It has a tendency to grow cold. It has a tendency to give up. You do good to those who do good to you. You are nice to those who are nice to you. That's human love. But not so our Heavenly Father's love. God chooses to love you even when you don't deserve to be loved. He chooses to love you even when you don't respond in love back to Him. Let me illustrate it this way. Someone nearby around here have 20 bucks you could loan me? 20 bucks. Anybody with 20 bucks? Okay. We got them running. That's good. Offering time. That's great. Thanks, man. All right. <laughs> now, so here I, ha I have uh, 20 bucks. Now, um, if, if I was to make this available to give to anybody, um, how many of you would be open to receiving this? Well, we've got about 20% of you that are honest. That's good. All right. But a lot of hands, a lot of hands, and that's good. Now, but what if I were to take this $20 and crumple it all up, stomp on it, grind a little dirt into it, and, uh, you know, um, tear it? <laughs> well, it looks a real mess now. I've got someone on the front row really upset. Uh, what I've done to this $20. Okay. Now, it's definitely messy. It's ugly now. But given that reality, how many of you would still be open to receiving this 20 bucks? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Okay. Um, you know, I, thanks so much. I'm, I'm going to put this in the offering plate next service. Is that okay with you? Okay. 
It's great. Thanks for the offering. Um, that's wonderful. Um, <clears throat> does anybody have a $100 bill? No. <laughs> no. Now, why would you accept this $20, even though it's a real mess? The reason you accept this $20 bill is because it hasn't lost its value. Like this $20 bill, you are loved by God. Not because you are squeaky clean and perfect, but because you are His. You are His creation. You are made in His image. You matter to Him big time. Now it's true that our sin and our wrongdoing can dirty, can scar, can tear the image of God in us. And God grieves over that for our sake because he doesn't want to see us get all banged up and torn up. But it doesn't destroy the image of God in you and in me. We are still precious to him. We're still valuable. God's love for you, for me, is eternal. It never ends. Furthermore, God's love always has your best interests at heart. In verse 20, we read that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, and it says he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, I confess that I'm a rather mushy, lovesick kind of father. And my sons will tell you that I probably am capable of doing something like this. But you see, in Jesus' day, only a mother could get away with doing something like this. If a father was to run to his son and hug him and kiss him on the cheek, that was not only considered to be unmanly, but it was considered to be deeply humiliating. And yet his father was willing to make a fool of himself and do this. What prompted his father to want to do this? Well, it was his love for him. It was an expression of his incredible love for him. But it was also to protect his son. You see, he had his son's best interests at heart. Notice it says the father had compassion on him. There was sympathy involved here. And it's partly that which caused him to run. John Ortberg points out that in those days when a son shamed his father like this, he was often cut off not only from the immediate family, but he was actually cut off from the entire community. And if such a son had the courage or the guts to return to that community, he would not only be jeered and shunned by the people in the community, but he would even be roughed up by some of the tough guys of the community who would basically say to him, you know, get out of town. Don't bring any more shame to your family and especially to your father. And you see, his father knew that. And it was on that basis that he ran to his son. 
And he does something deeply humiliating in the culture of that day. He runs to his son and he embraces him. He hugs him and he kisses him knowing that in doing so, in that particular culture, that was a sign that the father was fully accepting, that the father was uh, uh, restoring his friendship and his sonship. And he did it so that his son would not be mistreated but would be fully accepted again by the community. So is God's love for you and me. In Philippians 2, we read that Jesus, being in very nature God, he made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is God's heart of love for you and for me. It is so great, he has our best interests at heart, a willingness to suffer shame, a willingness to humble himself, a willingness to be a servant, even to die for us. Fourthly, God's love forgives and restores. The father does not wait for his son to come crawling to him. No, he runs to his son and hugs him. He asks for his servant to bring a new robe, to take off all those filthy rags that the son is wearing and put on a new robe and he gives him a ring and he gives him the sandals, all of those things being signs that he was restoring his son. And as he does, he does not give his son a lecture. Well, I hope you learned your lesson. He doesn't, you know, give any manly kind of threats. You wait until your mother comes home from work. (laughs) No penalties to pay in order to get back into the good graces of his father. Instead, Jesus describes a father here whose love for his son is so overwhelming that he shouts out to all who will listen, this is my son who was lost and is found again. Now friends, God's love for us is no different. He waits patiently for us to come home. And when, like the lost son, we have a change of heart, And we humble ourselves. And we come back home to our Heavenly Father. Like this earthly father, he runs to us and embraces us and welcomes us home. Nothing brings him greater joy. You know, if you've ever experienced the absolute agony, as I have on more than one occasion, of your computer freezing up just as you finish a 50-page term paper or a sermon... Or if you've ever experienced the agony of losing your wallet, not so much because of the money, but because of all of your personal identification and credit cards and all that stuff. Or if you've ever experienced the terror of losing a child in a busy mall or some other busy place. But then have experienced the joy and the absolute relief 
of finding again that which was lost. Then you have a glimpse of how God feels when we humble ourselves and come back home to him. This is the nature of God's love for us. Now, you know, in John 15, verse 9, Jesus makes this remarkable statement. He says, Just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Did you get that? Jesus says here, his love for us is equal to his Father's love for him. That blows me away. Reminds me of the story of a pastor who was walking along a pathway in a rural village when he stumbled upon an old peasant. And this peasant was kneeling on the side of the road and he was praying and the pastor was moved and and just blown away by um, the dedication of this young, this, this old peasant. And, and he said, you know, you must be uh, very close to God. And the peasant looked up and said, yes, he's very fond of me. He's very fond of me. I wonder how our life would change. If we truly believe the Bible's astonishing words about God's love that we've just looked at, if we saw our primary identity in Him in life as the one that Jesus loves. Now in verse 25 we read the older brother heard all the music and all the celebration going on in the house. And when he found out that his younger brother had returned, had been forgiven, and had been restored to his father, the Bible says that he was angry. He was angry because the grace the father extends to his younger brother just seems to be utterly unfair. You see, the older brother has been a good son. The older brother has followed the rules. The older brother has never acted selfishly. He's never shamed his father. He's never hurt the family financially. And yet the younger brother does all of that and more and gets a hero's welcome. And it just doesn't seem fair. It just doesn't seem right. James Smith says, Jesus is striking at the heart of the problem that we have with grace. And that is, is that we don't like grace. It seems unfair. But in reality, it's perfectly fair because whether we realize it or not, we all need grace. And God is gracious to all who will receive it. The younger son eventually came to experience God's grace in his own life. He comes home and he receives his father's love. He's not punished or executed. He's not dismissed or shamed. Rather, he receives life. 
the younger son realizes that there isn't a better place to be. There isn't a more joyful place to be than the place of humility and brokenness before God, the place of resting in the love and the grace of God. And you see, this is the place where God wants all of us to live, where the younger son ended up. You can be sure the younger son was a gracious person because he had genuinely experienced grace himself. Now, unfortunately, the older brother doesn't see any need for grace because generally he's been pretty good. And that is why he is so upset when his brother receives it. Again, James Smith says, there is only one thing that separates us from God, and it is not our sin. It is our self-righteousness. This false notion that the older brother had, and that the Pharisees had, that we're doing pretty good and on our own, and we don't need grace. Our self-righteousness does not turn God from us but it has the potential of turning us from God. It prevents us from humbling ourselves and accepting God's grace for ourselves. And sadly, it also prevents us from extending God's grace to others and rejoicing with others who find grace themselves. And what Jesus is saying here is the reason so many Christians live in a continual state of guilt and the reason that some Christians are very unhappy, miserable, even mean is because they are convinced that God's upset with them And like the older brother, are convinced that they are, they, they are, they're trusting more in their performance than in God's grace, which is self-righteousness. You say, well, pastor, how can I know if I'm taking the way of the older brother rather than the way of the younger brother? How can I know whether I'm leaning more on performance than on grace. We know that we're on the path of the older brother when we resist extending grace to other people. When we have a hard time you know, letting go of hurt and the offenses of others. When we want to see others pay for how they've hurt us. We know we're on the pathway of the older brother when we're critical of others for their sins and their faults, when we slander others or shun others, or when we find ourselves crabby and resentful and anger, angry and grumbling and complaining a lot. We know we're on the path of the older brother when we envy other people's success, when we find ourselves comparing and competing and needing to reach the top and be the biggest or the best to have the greatest company or ministry, the greatest position or the greatest salary to feel valuable. 
All this reveals is we don't understand God's love for us and we surely don't understand our identity in Jesus Christ because we're still trusting more in our performance to please God and we're still trusting more in, in, in our own abilities to impress others. It's a pathway that leads to despair and endless guilt and frustration. The pathway of the younger brother is the pathway of grace. It's a pathway that is grounded in the conviction that God will never love you any more than he does right now. Neither will God love you any less than he does right now because his love and acceptance of you and me is not conditioned on our response or on the basis of what we do or don't do. Now let me be clear. In saying this, I am not saying that God approves of sin. He doesn't. Yet somehow... God has the ability to love and care for those who sin. R.C. Sproul says, if I had to wait for God to approve of everything I did before he could love me, I would still be a very lost person. It is while we are still sinners, he says, that God loves us, which is a truth we must not forget. But having clarified that, the pathway of the younger brother is grounded in the conviction that we are righteous and totally acceptable to God, not on the basis of what we do or don't do, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us at the cross of Calvary. You see, when I embrace Jesus as my Savior and Lord by faith, two things happen in the spiritual realm. God took my sins, the bad and the ugly, and he placed it upon Jesus, which is why Jesus died on the cross. And he took Jesus' perfect righteousness, and he placed it on my account. There was an exchange that took place. An amazing exchange. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 explains it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Bob George says, to be righteous means that I am in right standing with God and that I am totally acceptable to God. And this is given to you and to me, folks, as a gift. A product of God's outrageous love and grace. I don't work for it. I don't earn it. I sure don't deserve it. Like any gift, all I can do is accept it or reject it and once I accept it, it's mine. Now let me be clear, even though I am righteous and I am acceptable to God in the spiritual realm, that doesn't mean I live perfectly here on the earthly realm, here on earth. Far from it. 
I'm still growing spiritually in this life, even as you are. And because God loves me and wants me to experience life to the full, and because he wants to to fulfill his purpose for me in this life, he will point out sins in my life that need to be confessed and need to be changed for my ultimate benefit and his ultimate glory. But at no time is his love and his acceptance of me ever in question. That is the pathway of the lost son. That's where he ended up. The pathway of love and grace. The pathway of humility and brokenness and total dependence on his heavenly father. And that is where God wants you and me. I'll close with this. Philip Yancey tells about one of his pastoral friends who was battling with his 15-year-old daughter. He knew that she was using birth control and several nights she had not bothered to come home at all. The parents had tried everything but to no avail. The daughter lied to them, deceived them, found a way to turn the tables on them by blaming them for her rebellion, saying it was because they're too strict. This is why she was doing what she was doing. And then she stormed out of the house again and left for the day and for the evening. The father said this to Yancey. He said, I remember standing before the plate glass window in my living room, staring out into the darkness, waiting for her to come home. I felt such rage. I wanted to be like the father of the prodigal son. And yet I was furious with my daughter for the way that she would manipulate us and twist the knife to hurt us. And of course she was hurting herself more than anyone if only she would realize it. The father went on to say, and yet I must tell you, when my daughter came home the next morning, I wanted nothing in the world so much as to take her in my arms and to tell her that I loved her and I wanted God's very best for her. I was a helpless, lovesick father. Friends, that is a picture of God's love for you and me. Even if you've turned your back on Jesus, even if you've spit in his face, or perhaps maybe you've done little more than just drift from him a little bit, just kind of keep him at a safe, comfortable distance, regardless of where you're at, you need to understand that God's not given up on you and that he's still pursuing you. Like a lovesick father standing in front of a plate glass living room window, totally heartbroken and heartsick, yet wanting above all else to wrap his child in his arms and to forgive and to welcome her back home. He wants your heart, not your performance. For when he has your heart, he will live his supernatural life 
through you. He will. And then, as you rest in God, and you find your meaning and identity in God and God alone, your desire to have the approval of other people, to compete and to compare, to reach the top, and all the craziness in life that comes with that, that will just slowly be replaced by His love, His joy, and His amazing eternal peace. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? I'm convinced that deep down inside we all long for the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God but the question is not will God forgive you that's really not the issue we've seen that he will like the father of the prodigal son God longs for us all to come home the question is will you like the lost son have a change of heart Will you accept God's forgiveness by faith? Maybe you've been running from God. And that's why you just feel so empty. And you want that to change. So I'm going to invite you in a moment to come up here to tell Jesus that you're coming home and receive his grace and forgiveness in your life. Some of you would have to admit that you've been slow to extend this amazing grace you've received from Jesus to others. I talked to a person recently who told me about a conflict that erupted in their family. And as a result, family members have not talked to each other for years. Perhaps God is speaking to you about a situation like that or some other situation that you know you need to have a change of heart toward that person. You've been harboring resentment and bitterness. And you need to come to the Lord and you need to ask Him for His wisdom and courage. I invite you to come up here in a moment and pour out your heart to God. And then there are some of you who have lost a lot of your joy in your Christian life. Because until now, you've always believed that God was mad at you for not meeting all of his standards. But you now realize that there is nothing you can do that will make God love you any more or any less. And you want to tell the Lord, that your primary identity in life from this day forward will no longer be based on what you do or on what you have or on what you've accomplished or on what others think of you, but on the fact that you are the one whom Jesus loves. If that's your desire, if you want to receive God's help, 
embracing and living out your new identity in him, I'm going to invite you to make your way up here and receive his grace and love. Whatever God's speaking to you about, it's decision time. I'm going to invite you to take a physical step toward him and affirming your conviction to think and act differently and to receive and embrace his love and his identity from this time forward. We're just going to wait a few moments. I invite you to come. As we all bow our heads and close our eyes and we wait for just a few moments. Father, we've heard so much about God's love down through the years that sometimes we don't even really think about it much anymore. Except that so many of us, Lord, have been walking with all kinds of guilt and heaviness on our heart because we feel we have fallen so short of your standard and we've disappointed you so greatly. Lord, I pray that based upon the teaching of your word today, that you will set free those who have come forward, that you will set us all free from any kind of performance treadmill thing that we're on. And Lord, we will realize that we are loved unconditionally by you and that we will love you and we will serve you, Lord, out of the overflow of that love. May your joy and your peace just be part of all of our lives. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you not only his peace, but his supernatural love. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.